Wow, I love Christmas. Birthday of Jesus, just reflecting. Don't, don't you do this? Don't you just take time and as you're leading up to Christmas and after just meditating on this very purpose for why Christ came to this earth, God so loved the world that he gave. Amen, church? Isn't that awesome? That is God's amazing grace. I'm going to share a story with you. I mean, so I've been told this story about Arnold Palmer, uh, the great golfer. And Arnold Palmer came to a blind golfer's convention, believe it or not. And, and as he was beginning to uh, give his speech, he, he asked them, he said, so how is it as blind golfers that you even do this thing called golf? And one of the gentlemen stood up and volunteered an answer. He said, well, here's what we do. We're standing at the tee, and we have another one who's standing at the, the flag where the hole is, and he rings a bell. And we kind of gauge the, where that bell is and the distance, and we tee off. And Arnold Palmer says, that's amazing. Well, can I ask you, does this work? And the guy said, it works so well, I'm willing to challenge you to a $10,000 bet that I can beat you. Arnold Palmer chuckled a little bit, and he said, really? Well, okay, uh, you're on. What time should we meet? And the guy said, 10.30 tonight. <laughs> How many of you think that Arnold won? <laughs> but isn't it true that many times as Christians, we kind of play in the dark? Uh, Christ came to this earth as our light to dispel that darkness, to dispel the shadows in our lives. But many times, even as Christians, we choose to live in those shadows. That is sad, isn't it? The shadows in our lives, those areas in which we kind of keep from God, and he's wanting us to surrender those to him. I want you to imagine if you were to walk into uh, your well, let's say you walk into your kids' rooms. This true story, and you walk into the room. The kids have said, "Dad, we are all done cleaning our room." And you walk in because it's night, and you turn the light on, and you see the middle of the room is actually clean. But as you begin to look behind the door, where there are shadows under the bed where it's difficult to see and there are shadows in the closet that has been conveniently closed. And as you open it, you're wondering, what is behind this door? I know it's not locked. <laughs> and as you open it up, you realize <laughs> that that's where all the stuff went, that they cleaned the room. And as you begin to look around and you realize the middle of the room may be clean, but where there are shadows, okay, you're following my analogy here, there's still stuff. There's still toys and there's still papers crumbled up and you're wondering, how did you not see this? And yet, isn't it true, church, that we can at times live in those shadows? We've been redeemed by Christ and yet we can tend to live in those shadows. This is sad. I mean, what Christ, I, I want to ask us, what does Christ's birth Christmas, his incarnation, have to do with our ability to completely walk in the light. Now, understanding that light in the New Testament many times is a metaphor for truth. How is it, then, that Christ's birth, his incarnation, God coming to earth, now applies to this concept of dispelling the shadows in our lives? Isn't it true that there are things in which we keep close to us, that God says, you know what? How about if you get rid of this? How about if you lay this down and we hold on to this and we hold on to this? And God is inviting us to come out of the shadows. He is wanting to dispel the shadows. But what does Christmas have to do with this? So turn with me to Luke chapter 1. This is a well-known story of when angel Gabriel appears to Mary I'm not going to focus on the entire story. I'm going to focus on just a few verses here. And we're going to go through what is probably going to be somewhat theological, but you're going to see where we're going because it has much to do 
with this very question of how is it that God dispels the shadows in our lives? Are you there with me? Luke chapter one, starting with verse 26. In the sixth month, that is in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy of John, who later became John the Baptist. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a town a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. You may remember the name Jesus means Savior. He saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. We see a couple of things here that Jesus, first of all, is given that name. This child born of Mary will be given the name Jesus, meaning Savior, Deliverer. That he is called the Son of the Most High. The Son of the Most High. Now that was rather odd. Because, in a sense, Adam was a son of God because he was made in his image. We, when we believe in Jesus, we are sons and daughters of God. But here, Jesus is called the Son of the Most High. We're going to get into that a little bit. He's also called, he's also said to (coughs) be given or will be given the throne of his father, that is, ancestor David who was a king, as you may know, ruled over Israel and was promised that another son or descendant would be born to him that would establish a kingdom. And and prophetically, that is here. This is Jesus who would eventually sit on his throne, reign over the house of Jacob. And it says his kingdom will never end. Now, this is kind of a throwback. If you remember in some of your greeting cards, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, it says, For unto us a child is given, unto us a son is born, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Of the increase of his government, that is, of his reign, of his rulership, there will be no end and it kind of is a is is a looking ahead daniel when he gives that prophecy or, or interprets nebuchadnezzar's dream you remember a couple of weeks ago i touched on this in which the 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 rock that is carved out of the mountain will come and crush that image that would be those four kingdoms you know babylon per media persia Greece, even Rome, would crush these kingdoms and would establish his own. And during the Roman Empire days, that, of course, is when Christ was born under Caesar Augustus. And as he was born, he eventually, at age 30, probably about 33 or so, laid down his life, secured redemption for us, established his kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, not a physical or military kingdom. And it is this kingdom that is to fill the whole earth it says in Daniel chapter 2, and, and here in, in Isaiah 9, 7, it says of the increase of his government, his reign, there will be no end. 
And, and we're getting this idea that the reign of Christ is only going to progress as it impacts nation after nation after nation, even Muslim nations, even those that might be considered atheistic, communistic nations, that the gospel is eventually going to come into those nations. And church, this is the awesomeness of God's mighty plan that he loves them and his goal is to rescue them, those nations that are in rebellion against him. And I, I tell you what, that, that includes us here in America. And even though we truly have been established as a Christian nation, a nation that is founded on biblical principles, whether our past presidents have been willing to acknowledge this or not, we were established as a Christian nation in the sense that we are founded upon our judicial system, our laws. They're founded upon our, our, our economics is founded upon biblical principles, the Bible. And God's kingdom, I believe, is going to turn this nation around one day. I, I pray it's in my, my generation. But his goal is to do just that. And so the increase of his government, there will be no end. And then it goes on, and, and Mary says, oh, okay, I, I think I'm understanding this about that much. But here's my problem. How is this going to happen? I mean, I'm a virgin, and I'm supposed to have a baby? Do, do you see the problem, Gabriel? And Gabriel goes on, and he says, that God's spirit is going to come upon you. His power is going to overshadow you. And just remember this, because here is going to be a sign to you that your cousin Elizabeth is going to have a baby when she's old and barren. That's a miracle. And so that's a, like a sign that this will happen. And he concludes with this, nothing is impossible with God. Now, initially, when we look at that that sentence, nothing is impossible with God. What a, what a truth. Nothing is impossible with God. No matter the circumstance you face, church, nothing can hold God back from fixing that problem. There is nothing that can keep God back to do miracles in your life except your unwillingness, your refusal to follow him or believe. Remember, Jesus went into Nazareth and did very few miracles because there was so little faith. So God does ask him, believe me, but there is nothing that's impossible. Mary obviously believed, though she was confused about how this was going to happen. And so there's, when he says nothing is impossible with God, initially we would say, well, he's simply answering her question, how is this going to be? Okay, I'm a virgin and you're saying I'm going to have a baby, but you see, God can do anything. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning that there is one other element here that we're not clearly being told, but it is truly a part of this answer for nothing is impossible with God. And it is this, it's the answer to this question. How is it that this Jesus who's supposed to be Savior this one who is going to be the son of the Most High, later called Son of God. He's supposed to sit on the throne. He's supposed to uh, have a kingdom that will never end. How can this be? Not just how is a virgin going to give birth to a baby, but how is God going to come down in the form of a baby? I don't get that. How is this baby going to be saviored? Jesus. The angel told uh, excuse me, Joseph in a dream, call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I believe that as we explore this concept of God becoming flesh, that is the incarnation of Jesus, we're going to see its tremendous implications for us as far as God dispelling the shadows in our life and allowing his light to totally shine in us and even what that means really so let's look into this turn with me if you would to john 114 go to your right matthew mark luke john 114 now 
I tell you what, this chapter, can I just say, John is one of the most amazing authors, in my opinion, in the New Testament. The, the gospel according to John is in some way so simple and explains the gospel so clearly, so well, and tells us about who Jesus is that anyone reading it would be able to get a clear understanding that this is God come in the flesh. We're actually going to read that verse in verse 14. But there is a depth to it that, wow, when you begin to go beyond the surface, you begin to dig into it, wow, what does it mean that Jesus truly is the bread of life? We're not going to go that deep, but we need to explore what verse 14 is saying because of the implications of this. It says, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, or the only begotten, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory. You see, the word is Jesus. The word became flesh. In the Greek, it's, it's logos. We actually get our English word logo from this word. And what, when you see a swoosh, what do you immediately think of? Nike, right? Yeah, that's Nike. When I was younger, Tiger was uh, a well-known uh, brand of sh running shoe. And, you know, they had a certain look to their shoes. New Balance, others, they have a certain look, emblems and whatnot. When you see certain logos, you immediately think of that company because it represents something, that company. When you speak a word, what does that word represent? It represents your thought, right? Now, how am I going to know, let's say, Cole and what he's thinking if he does not communicate that to me. I have no idea what Cole is thinking until he says something, or he may draw a picture, okay, but that's, sometimes there's a lot of uh, symbolism and interpretation of a picture, and, and maybe Cole uses stick figures like me, and I'm kind of scratching my head, what is that, right? Uh, but words communicate clearly, and, and, and actually, if you're a good communicator, it communicates exactly what you're thinking, and that is what's being said here. See, God, if you will, is the thought, but how are we going to even know God? And so God spoke the word, that is, Jesus is the word. He is, as Hebrews 1.3 says, that he is the son of the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. We would never be able to see the sun, for example, if the sun did not have light. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. This Greek word for being here is this word for essence essence or substance the very essence or substance of god is perfectly reflected in jesus how is that because the word became flesh the word became flesh do we have the the words i want to display two words up here for us and look at them. They're, they're Greek words, and you don't have to even write these words down, but I want to explain something to you. The first one is theotes. The, next, the second one is theotes. There is a difference of only one letter, what they call an iota. There is an iota of difference between these two words, if you will. Now, in the King James Version, over 400 years ago, they did not understand the difference between these two words. Since then, 400 years, we've discovered more Greek manuscripts. And, and I don't just mean Bible manuscripts. I mean just early writers. And as we've studied Greek more and more, we understand differences and nuances of Greek words better. 
And we discover that there is a difference between these two words, but if you were to look in your King James Version, you would find the same translation. It just translated both of them Godhead. I want you to think for a moment, if you were ignorant, and you were to ask, be asked the question, what, what do you think Godhead would mean? Exactly, thank you. God's head? I, I'm not getting this. And so when we, when we this, this first word is actually found in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. It's found only in two places in the New Testament. The second word is found only once. But it, this first word, theotes, theotes, is found in Romans 1.20. Now, we studied Romans 1.20, and that is that creation speaks, displays God's eternal power and theotes. Now, the King James has Godhead, but it's properly translated divine nature or the attributes of God. The second one is found in Colossians 2.9, and I'd like you to turn there with me as I explain the difference here. <coughs> in Colossians 2.9, don't let me lose you here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Uh, there is no test afterwards about what these words mean, and did you put the accent in the proper place? Uh, we don't even have accents up there. But I want you to see something here that I think is going to help us as we understand this concept of the word became flesh. And it says here in chapter 2, verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of the... Now, if you have the King James, it says Godhead. Now, the NIV says deity. All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. I want to spend just a bit of time on this verse and why it's significant. This second word, theotes, it doesn't mean the divine attributes. It means the divine essence. Just like in Hebrews 1.3, the divine essence of God. Now, if you were to look at both of these words, you might say to yourself, observing, you, they look just like the Greek word theos, which is God. And that is the basis for each of these words, but they mean very different things. The first means divine attributes or God's attributes. The second means God's essence. Now, how many of you know what a pomegranate is? Raise your hand. Okay, you've seen a pomegranate. Have you ever cut one open? Cut one open. Okay. Now, did you realize that in the UK, they call pomegranates Chinese apples? Because actually, if I were to take a red apple and set it next to a pomegranate, it might have a different, just a little bit different shape to it, but they're both very red, and you might consider them very similar. You might look at their attributes and say, wow, uh, they are very similar. So in the UK, they actually call the pomegranate the Chinese apple. Now let's cut both of those in half. And you were to see the inside of an apple and the inside of a pomegranate. Those of you who have done that, is there any difference? Oh, huge difference. Total difference. Yeah. You see, because the substance of the pomegranate or Chinese apple is very different. Many seeds and around each seed is the pulp. And it's, you can, you eat one, you eat, you eat them all separate or you can put them in your mouth, but you got to be careful not to chew these. There's a bunch of seeds. And in the apple, the seeds are all in the, the center. And it's easy to eat without chewing on the seeds. Not so with the pomegranate. Very different inside. One, the, the attributes of these, the apple and the pomegranate, a lot of similarities. The essence, what they're comprised of, vastly different. And so when we come to this second word in Colossians 2.9, we understand he's not just talking about the attributes of God. Love, goodness, peace, joy, patience, kindness, humility, self-control. It is not just that these attributes of God came into a body called Jesus. See, that is the liberal view. In liberal theology, God and his attributes specifically indwelt a body called Jesus. 
This was actually a heresy in the early church in which John the Apostle had to address it because Serinthus, this particular gentleman, taught that the Logos, the Christ, at Jesus' baptism came into Jesus and inhabited his body. So Jesus, in one sense, was God, and in another sense, he was man, but they were totally separate, and when Jesus died, they were separated. When we look at this person, Jesus, and we look at this, here's the significance of this, that God didn't just come down and indwell a human being, a body. It doesn't say that all the fullness of Theotes dwelt in a body, bodily, in a bodily form or in a human being, but rather it dwelt bodily. And as John 1.14 says, the word, God himself actually became flesh. Now, in this song, Mary, Did You Know, there is a line in it that says, when you've kissed your little baby, you've kissed the face of God. I love that line. This little baby that she held is not just God living inside of her, but this is God but also man. And as I look into his face, he appears human, but it is only because God became man. Not leaving behind his divinity, not leaving behind his divine essence, but still retaining that, he became just like you and me. If you pinch that little baby, he would cry. I don't know, this is a poor illustration, but if, if you're familiar with flip colors in cars, you look at it from one angle and let's say it appears yellow. And everyone looking at it would say, absolutely, it's yellow. You take a walk about 10 feet the other way and look at it and it is green. And the question can be asked, well, is it yellow or is it green? And you would say it is completely both. And Jesus, as Mary held this little baby, was completely God. And yet in some way that is impossible for man, but possible with God, he was also human. God and man. So the Nicene Creed, in 325, it states this, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. It says here that all the fullness of this God essence of God existed bodily, became flesh. Let me just use an illustration of, of an ocean in which when you look at the ocean, in, in all aspects of the ocean, it's, it's the same, okay? If you were to take a glass of the ocean in any part of the world, it would still be the same. This essence of the ocean became Jesus. Now, here is where I'm going with this. Let's look at the very next verse. Because it says that we have received this very same fullness in Christ. Now, I did say when we were looking at John 1.14, I'm going to make this real practical in just a moment. That when we were looking at John 1.14, he was called the only begotten. Now, if you were to talk to, to a Jehovah's Witness, they would have a misunderstanding about this, that the only begotten means that Jesus was born, that God the Father actually birthed him. But they would also admit that that didn't happen in Bethlehem. It happened many, many years ago before the world was even created. And they would confess to you, well, no, he technically wasn't born. He was created. And so Jehovah's Witnesses say that, that Jesus was created by God the Father. But that is not what that phrase means. It is firstborn simply means a title. So for Jesus to be 
begotten, that is a special place that Jesus had as one who would represent the Father completely and perfectly when he stepped into our human realm and took on human flesh. But you and I, though we are sons and daughters, we are not the only begotten ones. He is the Son of God. I am a Son of God. And actually, when we went through the book of Romans in chapter 8, we discovered that we are adopted into his family. We were rebels. We were a part of that kingdom of darkness that warred against God, though we may not have felt that way. We truly fought against God. We spit in his face. We totally rejected him. Romans paints a very bad picture of where we once were as enemies of God, and yet it is the very enemies of God that God himself said, I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. And he reached down and he rescued us from that. And it says here that he has taken the his fullness, fullness of Christ, and he has placed it in us. It's as, it, it is not that that essence of God became me, that's Jesus. But rather, everything about Jesus, his love, his goodness, his faithfulness, his kindness, the who Jesus is, that placed in me here's the significance of that that means in Romans 8 it says Christ lives in you in the person of his spirit that means that when when you chose to believe in Jesus this Christ who is beyond our understanding of how he was completely God and then became completely human, that person by his spirit lives in me. Here's the significance of this, church. That means that when Mike Curtis was a sin addict, when he was lost in his sin, Christ came in me by his spirit and he broke that chain of addiction so that I can walk free from it. That is the power of Christ in me now. I was dead in my sin. I was estranged from God and an enemy. I walked in darkness. Death clung to me like a cloak. It was a part of my nature. Bible says I was dead in my sins. Christ now comes in me and I experience life. And I experience life to the full. In John 10, as Zach was talking about earlier, about the, the gate in that passage, it talks about us because of Christ that we would have life and have it to the full. That is the life. And now I am transferred from death to life. I was a God hater. You were a God hater. You might deny that, but the truth is you were, and by your, you can prove that, demonstrate it by the way you lived your life. You tried to do it your way. And God said, you know what? I need you to do it my way. And Christ came in you, and though you were a God-hater, you became a God-lover. You may have been, even as a Christian, straying from Christ and his ways. We aren't wandering around, if you will, in those shadows. And by the power of Christ, who came to rescue, he now, even as a follower of Jesus, calls you and woos you and seeks to win your heart and be able to bring you out of the shadows to walk in the light. I'm going to use an illustration here. If you were to walk into your living room, uh, not your kid's room for this one, but into a living room, it's dark, you need to clean the room, you turn the light on, you now are able to see what needs to be vacuumed and straightened, except there is a problem. And that problem are the, uh, the objects in the room in which those objects cast shadows. And you need to somehow be able to shine light where there are shadows, you need to somehow be able to remove 
these obstacles. When Christ comes in you and the light is turned on, you are drastically changed. Drastically changed. But there is a process by which you move, in which he continues to turn the light on and remove these obstacles so the light shines where there was once shadows. Let me use this illustration to help us understand that. Can you see this glass of water okay? All right. Sin comes into our life, and I'm only going to add one drop of this green, uh, excuse me, blue dye. And that would represent sin in my life. Before Christ is a sin addict, sin permeated my being. Now, I, this cup is not pure dye, neither, neither was I or you pure evil. But sin came into our life and it corrupted all of me, all of me. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ today, if you have never given him your heart and surrendered to his lordship and cried out to him to rescue you from your sin, this is you right here. I'm not saying that you're complete evil. The devil's pretty close, but you are not pure evil. Sin is in you, though. You have lost your way. The Bible says you're actually dead in your sins, and there is no life of God in you. And he desires this life for you that is totally contrary to this, and he must get rid of this, the blue dye, if you will, the sin. We call that sanctification or purifying. And so what I have here is what I'm going to call in this Christ in me. Do you see that? Christ in me. Colossians uh, says, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Christ in me, the hope of glory. This is the turning on of the light, if you will. This is Christ coming in me and rescuing me, taking me from death to life. This is my sins being washed away. This is the power of Christ coming in me by his spirit so that now I can walk in freedom from sin and that addiction broken. And I can turn to Christ and as I rely by faith on him, he can allow me to walk in holiness. Christ in me, the hope of glory. And as he comes in us, I'm going to just stir it up here, but you can tell there is an immediate change in this water, can't you? An immediate change, much lighter. You see, when Christ comes in us, to go back to that initial illustration, the light is turned on. The obstacles in your room, if you will, they are the couches in your life. How many of you have ever moved a couch all by yourself? All by yourself. You, you slid it across the room, didn't you? Take it through the front door now. Anybody by yourself? <laughs> okay, maybe not. Here is the truth about couches. Long ones, big ones. So you, to pick them up, you can't do it by yourself, unless you're Donald Nolette and he's got, okay. No, the truth is we need help. We all, to move a couch, you always need someone on the other end, and that is the Holy Spirit, and he helps us. Now, I'm using this illustration in this way only to show that we are in cooperation with God. God is not in cooperation with me. He says the shadows must go and I cooperate with him. It also says that not only salvation but my walk with Christ it is by grace through faith. And consequently by grace through faith does not actually even mean I'm on the other side of the couch. You see, the Holy Spirit does all the heavy lifting, all of it. I simply say, Spirit of God, would you please remove this couch? I am unable to. I can't even lift up my end. I'm so sorry. 
but can you remove this couch? Because there's too many shadows, and there's junk behind this in the shadows, and it must be cleaned up. And so would you, I am now giving you permission, would you please remove this? Because I cannot. See, that is me under grace. Did you realize that when we were going through the book of Romans, we talked about what it meant to be under law and under grace, that being under law is not necessarily sin. It's not. Check it out. In in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, it says Jesus, or rather God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law. The problem, though, is that law was both inadequate to change me and it was dangerous. Let me explain. The law was instituted in the Old Testament, but here's the news. We have always been saved by grace through faith. Old Testament and New Testament. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. We discover this in Romans chapter 4. So it has always been by faith. The law was added to do to these two things. It, it was added to show me my sin and it was added as an expression of my faith. But this is why I say the law was dangerous. Because we, we actually find out in, in Romans as well. Let me get the verse here. Romans, I'm going to get it in just a moment. 9.32. They, that is the Jews, pursued it, that is righteousness, not by faith, but as if it were by works, that is law. The Jews, they took the law and they did something with it that they never were supposed to. And that was sin. What they did was they tried following the law, doing all of these good things, even the ceremonial law, which was the toughest part. They did these things so that they would be able to show a righteous life to God, hoping he would accept them. And the whole book of Romans says, you can't do that. You will never be able to do enough good works to stand righteously before God. And so this is the danger of the law. This is the trap that the Jews fell into. They were hoping that by doing the law, it somehow would empower them, somehow allow them to be found right before God. And they realized that they could not. The Gentiles, says in the preceding verse of Romans 9, the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness by the law at all, they're the ones who found it because they believed in Jesus, whereas the Jews were rejecting it. My point then is not that the law or being under law was sin, but there was danger to it. And then Ezekiel tells us this, and here's the clincher. In Ezekiel 36, 27, knowing that they were trying to follow the law and it was inadequate to help them obey God, it was powerless. And they kept breaking the law over and over. And they would try harder with all of their human effort to obey the law. And understand, salvation was always by faith. But now they're using the law. And it was completely inadequate to help them. So what does God do? And in Ezekiel 36, 27, it says, And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. And so now... This is what's different. The Spirit of God is in you. All the fullness of Theotis is in you in the person of his Spirit. And he changes everything. And he doesn't just change it all when you are saved, but he sanctifies you. Let's go back over to our... Oh my, look at this. May have taken a little bit of time, but it's complete. the glass of water is completely clear now. You see, this is the process of the Holy Spirit in you. It, it is not just 
Jesus, who's both God and man, and, you know, kind of some mixture here, and part God, part man, who's fully God, fully man. He indwells you. And by the power of his spirit, he changes you. He rescues you. He enables you to live this life that truly pleases God by grace through faith. You know what? You just need to realize you can't do the the heavy lifting in your life. The problems that you face, you can't handle those in your own strength. You might think you can. Good luck with that. You might think that you're able to solve your problems. You might think that you're able to do this heavy lifting. But I'm going to tell you this. When you surrender it to Jesus, when you fall down before him and say, God, I don't know what's going on in my life. I am facing this obstacle and I cannot I cannot move it. I can't do it. I've tried. In my own human effort, I've tried. That's me being under the law. I've tried. That's the danger of the law. It's holy and good, but you can rely on it, and it was never meant to do that. So you know what, God, since I can't fix this problem, and I'm trying it all my own way, I'm going to confess to you I can't. But all things are possible with God. And I am asking you, would you do my heavy lifting? Would you remove these things in my life? I'm weary. I I, I feel shame. I feel regret. I need you to do this. I am powerless. I am only going to cooperate with you. That's all I can do and ask you, please. I can't, but you can. And so, God, would you do this in my life? Would you do this? This problem that I'm facing at work, my boss, I can't control him. I try to be as nice as I can. I can't do it. Would you do it? The obstacles that are in your life, that boss that keeps ridiculing you no matter how hard you try, and it is stirring up anger within you and frustration, and you're beginning to pray, Lord, please, do something to that man or something to that woman because I can't deal with them. And I tell you what, if he happens to accidentally step in front of a train, oops, you know, whoa, our hearts start going there, filled with anger, bitterness, hatred. And it will consume you, my friends. You need to be rescued. You need God, Jesus Christ. That baby born in Bethlehem to come in your life. That word that became flesh to step in your life, to rescue you, and day by day by day change you. Let him do the heavy lifting by grace. Grace is everything that he has that I don't. Wow, do I desperately need it. By grace through faith. Always, by grace through faith. That same person who lives in you to make you sons and daughters of God daily empowers you to live in the light for God. You just think about this truth. Because I want to ask you, If you have never surrendered your heart to him, you were like that water with the blue dye. I'm not saying you were pure evil. I wasn't pure evil. Oh, sometimes my brothers thought that. I wasn't. But when Christ came in, he broke bondages, and he began to free me. And it has taken many, many years, but he's changed me. I'm not the angry kid that I used to be. I was so filled with rage. Only Christ could change me. I was lost in my sin, separated from God. Went to church every Sunday. And most Sunday nights, most Wednesday nights. But I needed to be rescued because that did not work. Only Jesus did. I'm going to have you stand with me right now. The worship team is going to come forward. We're going to sing one more song.
And I'm going to ask you, have you ever received Christ? Have you ever trusted in him, believed in him? Have you invited him into your life and asked him to rescue you from your sins? Have you allowed Jesus to take residence in your heart? As it says in that very same chapter of John 1, it says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, the authority, to become children of God. If you have done this, there's still shadows in your life. Jesus wants to dispel the shadows. Could we just close in prayer right now? And could you just hand the reins of your life over to him right now? If you've never come to Christ, if you've never truly trusted him, that means he's going to make you born again. If you're a child of God, maybe straying, wrestling, fighting with God, that means, you know what? Forgive me for taking the leadership here and the reins of my life. I give them back to you. That's what we're going to pray about. Spirit of God, I, I ask that you would speak to our hearts. God, that is something that I can't do right now. That is only something that you can do. Spirit of God, right now, speak to the hearts who need to hear. Knock on those doors of those hearts. And you speak your truth. You turn the light on. You bring the change that's desperately needed. We're just handing you the reins. We're saying, you know what, Jesus, forgive me. But would you take over right now? I've really messed this up. God, I'm asking you right now hearts are in this place of decision. Call them. Speak words of truth tenderly to their hearts and call them to you. Win them, God. Show them your love. Break into their lives, God. Open closed hearts, God. Speak truth. Turn the light on. You bring the change. You win the heart. In Jesus' name.